Well, let's jump into this. We, we began this series a couple of weeks ago, and we've been talking about the identity crisis in the church today. And the reason we're talking about this is that you cannot recognize the church today because it identifies as a number of different things. You've got conservative, progressive, you've got basically biblical and what we would call non-biblical. You've got them all over the map. You've got different denominations, which one's right, which one's wrong. The truth is none of us are 100% right and none of us are 100% wrong. Which one? And the right answer to that always is whatever I say, right? No, it comes down to Scripture. You see, the foundation of the church was founded on Scripture. The foundation of this country was founded on Scripture. And when you begin to go away from that, you begin to have problems. It's like if you've got a house, and you're like, you know, I would really like to get a little bit more daylight in my basement, and you just start punching holes in the concrete wall, you're eventually going to have problems. It's not going to end well. The number of holes that you end up punching in, it matters. And so the, what, that is essentially what we have done to the church, is the foundations upon the, which the church is built is in shambles. And we don't know why, and we question this, and we're asking the question, is like, why, why is the world the way it is today? Why is our country the way it is today? And if you don't like what you see, you might as well look in the mirror, because ultimately it does fall back on us. We can blame all sorts of different things, but the reality is, is that the body of Christ has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. We talk a big game, but we don't have a lot of substance. Essentially, the church today has become the Wizard of Oz. You've got this big, giant, green head that is just authoritative and speaking, but behind the curtains, nothing more than a man. And we say things and we do things, but the truth is, there ain't a lot of power behind what we're saying. And we don't have a foundation upon what we're saying is built upon. The reason for that is because we were not raised up, those of us that have been doing this for a long time, with the why we believe what we believe. We know the what's and the how's and the what to do and what not to do, but we don't know why any of it's true. To sit here and make the statement that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, is infallible in all its ways, when we have not even read it in its entirety, is essentially a lie. There's no foundation of it. And on top of that, if we don't know how the Bible was compiled and where it came from and what it's doing and all of that, how can we say with absolute certainty that it is 100% true? A lot of people come like, well, because I have faith. That's great. But you know who else has faith? The people who believe the opposite of you. And the thing is, is we need to know these things, and we have to know why. We are known more for what we don't like than what is true. And when you line up on truth, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. If the rest of the world takes the stance that 2 plus 2 equals 5, and you're shouting from the rooftops, it's for you idiots and the rest of the world goes sideways and they're like no it is now five i hope you would never say well i guess if you want it to be five it can be five i hope you never do that but that is essentially what we have done We've taken Scripture, watered it down to make it more palatable, easier to understand, all of these different things, and we just lost the heart of what we are to do. We don't have compassion for people the way that we should. We simply want to just coexist. And I don't know if you realize this, but the picture of Jesus that is on the internet and in the movies of this coexisting, loving man with a European accent and blue eyes is not the real Jesus. Because he was confrontational, matter of fact, and he called sin, sin. And the beautiful thing is, is he showed him a way out. 
and he paid the price to make it happen. So as we look at this going forward, we've got to understand what we're facing. What is the identity of the church? You see the tagline there, who am I in Christ? And that matters. But when we look at what identity is, it basically comes down to these three definitions. It's the collective aspect of the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. The set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognizable as a member of a group. And the quality or condition of being the same as something else. And so when we look at this and what this means, the question comes down is what does a Christian look like? And what does a Christian talk like? And how does a Christian act in every phase of life? We've got to be able to answer these questions. But it's not your opinion. It's from a biblical standpoint. And that's the thing, is we have opinions on Scripture that we've never studied. We've never looked into. we never said, okay, well, why is it that we do these different things? Like, let me give you an example. Now, we don't have that so much here, but perhaps you grew up in a different town, and you go to church, and after church, what do we do? We go to a restaurant. We, we basically have one option in this town, but, but you show up at a restaurant, and you got a whole bunch of people that you don't know, but they're all dressed nice, they look good, and it's about 12 o'clock, what do you assume about them? Well, they went to church too. They just got out. Why do we assume that? Because in our mind, churchgoers dress up and they go to the restaurant after church on Sunday. It's a set of characteristics by which we are recognizing people. Is it true? I mean, there is some truth to it, but we don't know. Maybe they just like to dress up. Maybe they wear a tie for fun. I don't know why that would be, but maybe that's what they do. Yeah, back there. Dapper Dan there. Shame on you. We're going to be praying for him before service is out. So let's jump into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. This is what we have been talking about. Is what are we? Well, we are not what we were. If, if you are born again, you are not what you were. And yet we want to live back there and wallow in that and identify as that and, and talk about the trauma that maybe we went through and all of that. And the thing is, is God has made us brand new. When are we going to act like it? Do you realize that the body of Christ has authority? We'll get into this more. Has authority on this earth, spiritually speaking, and yet we walk around as weak and meek as possible. Why is that? Because that's how we're identifying. It is time for us to rise up. And with that, we began to lay this little bit of a foundation talking about salvation and the three levels of salvation. And so I introduce you to these big, fancy words that aren't that big and aren't that fancy, but we don't often know what they mean. You've got justification, you've got sanctification, and you've got glorification. Justification, in its definition, is the action of declaring and making something righteous in the sight of God. I've said that it is basically justify had never sinned. So you've got that definition, and then you go into sanctification, and sanctification is the action of making or declaring something holy. What does holy mean? It means it is set apart for service. Now, these two definitions often get interchanged with one another. So as an example, somebody may use the word justification, but they will tie this meaning on it. Sanctification, in a nutshell, as a believer, is the process of which we get to look more like Christ. Or we're renewing our mind. We're crucifying our flesh. We are acting and molding ourselves into Him. Who does that? You do that. The Holy Spirit convicts your heart. You make the change. God doesn't do this. God did the justification. Your spiritual speaking, spiritual life, is completely transformed. It was dead. It's now alive. It is made whole and new. But your flesh, that's your problem. Don't say the devil made me do it. 
It's your problem. And so what we often do is you'll see is there's different sects of Christianity, and I'm using that in quotes for a reason. We'll take the definition for sanctification and apply it into the word justification. In other words, you are made holy by the things that you do. And that simply is not true. You are made righteous with God. The last part of this is the glorification. The glorification is essentially where we are now in the kingdom of God. This is our final resting place. This is where we are with Him for eternity. We have a glorified body. We are there in the presence of God. It is magnificent. These are the three levels of salvation. We say it like this. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The work for salvation as far as God is concerned is done. We are now crucifying our flesh, renewing our mind, and our words should match the changes in our hearts. And ultimately, when Jesus returns, we'll all be glorified into his image. This is where we are going. Now, with that, as we begin to talk about, I showed you Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to just briefly touch on this, and we're going to move on. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, this is the revelation of Jesus to John. These things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Who would that be? Jesus. These are the words of Jesus, so we should listen up. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? That's when it's all over. So what is this talking about? This is the church of Smyrna. And as I showed you guys last week, I showed you this picture. These are known as the arches of Smyrna. And in the arches of Smyrna, what they did, because they did not like what was happening with the way. Remember, Christianity is a modern term. These were followers of the way. They were a sect of Judaism, just like the Herodians, the Essenes, the Sadducees, Pharisees, all of the different E's that were out there. This was another sect. And they were followers of the way. Why was that? Because that is what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That sect of Judaism received Messiah and was confronting the rest of Judaism. And so in here, still underneath the Roman Empire... These Christians began to separate themselves and were not partaking in the activities that were going on during the day. What were those? Well, there was a lot of things, one of which was the games. And there was a lot of bad stuff that was going on. They would murder people, they'd kill people, all of that. Another sect was the bathhouses. I don't know if you know this, but to keep this as PG as I can, in the bathhouses, they weren't just bathing. Yeah, you can use your imagination. Not for too long, though. There's a lot of stuff that was going on they were partaking of. And so what happened here is that the Caesars were getting tired of this. And so what they did is they made them every year line up. And that they would go through here and they'd set a table here with a, a Roman legion or a, a, an army man, basically, a guy in charge. And they would have a bowl of incense and a lamp. And as they come through, they would take a pinch of that incense and burn it on the lamp and essentially say, Caesar is Lord. Why did they do that? They did that because they knew the followers of the way would not do it. Thus, by making it a law, it gave them legal rights to eradicate the followers of the way. Do you guys see that? And there was a great debate. 
well, is it okay if we do this? Because what was happening is some of the Christians would compromise and like, I have a family to take care of and all of this. Like, I don't really mean it. I'm just going through the motions. And a lot of times there was this big argument. Are they really even born again if that is the case, if they're willing to do this? And as I told you, this is the very way that a man named Polycarp died. At 86 years old, he absolutely refused to do this. He said, I am not doing this. And so they took him in there and they burned him at the stake. They were trying to wipe this out because these Christians were causing a problem in society. Now let's talk about this for a moment. How much uproar is there by the church today based on where society is going? There are pockets of it. But not so much so that our lives are being put on the line. At least not yet. Because those who are followers of Christ devoted to Him, will look at Scripture, compare everything to it, and say, no, 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 that does not fly. I will not do that. We won't justify, we won't say, oh, it's okay. We won't do any of those things. This is the line that Jesus drew. I will not cross it, even if it costs me everything I have. And if you've looked ahead in, in the book and read Revelation, you know eventually it's going to cost people everything that they have. Imagine the day will come where the argument will be like, well, I've got to take care of my family. I'm just going to take the mark, but I don't really mean it. The day will come. This is why we put our faith, hope, and trust in the Lord. So now as we know that, as we're going into this, we've got to begin to ask the question is, how much like the world should the church look? How much like the world should the church act? And how much like the world should the church speak? You see it everywhere. What we call the compromised church. You see it all over the place. Things being embraced and, and, and exemplified and saying, it's okay. God loves you just the way you are. The problem with that is, is if you read your Bible, you know that's not true because just the way you were was dead and Jesus came to give you life. So he didn't love you just the way you are. The idea of the church being separated is not a new concept though. Because what you've got to understand is that the parameters placed on the nation of Israel from the moment of their formation in their covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, it was to separate them from every other nation that was out there. Now, if you came on Wednesday night and you're, you're, we were going through Genesis, and as we start back up in the fall, we're really going to hammer into this, but you learned about all these nations that existed, and at the end of chapter 10, when the table of nations is separated... The immediately preceding chapter is about how God took Abraham and said, separate from your father, go to a place of which I will show you, I will make you a great nation. He separated in that moment. But you've got to understand something. They had a bunch of weird laws, 613 of them that they had to keep underneath the Mosaic Covenant. And the primary source of that was to make them the exact opposite of every nation that was around them. Because many of the things that were being done there, that they were the trimming of the edges of the beard, putting tattoo marks on your body, things like that, were dealing primarily with false God worship. And they would embrace these things and they would begin to do them and God says, no, 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 no. I am your king. Every other nation had a king. He says, you don't need a king. I am. We are a theocracy. You follow me. And what do they do? We want to be like the other nations. So God allowed it. So we've got to keep that in mind, and I want to look at a few verses and passages so that you get this. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, 
It says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So what is he doing? He's saying, if you'll do this, the whole world is mine, but you'll be here. You're my people. You're unique. I have chosen you. Don't be like them. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up to this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may, now, or may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. You see that again. It's exemplified. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So what are we seeing again? Israel, separated from the rest of the world. Don't act like them, don't talk like them, don't be like them. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgment and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you, may dwell, or bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. What do we see again? The separation. They're to be distinct. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast you out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So what do we see here? Now understand what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is Moses' last hoorah. Before they go into the promised land, he's giving him one more warning. When you go in there, do not make covenant with them. Do not marry them. Don't take their daughter. Don't take their son. And don't give yours to them. You have to turn away from them. You are a holy people. And God has chosen you for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. When they went in, what were they to do? Destroy everything that made that nation unique. What made a nation unique? How they worshipped their God. Every single time. That is what separated those nations apart. Because ultimately, if you were here on Wednesday nights going through Genesis, what did we learn? All of those nations came from three brothers. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some went north, some went south, some went east, whatever. All of them came from the same 
nations, what separated them was the God of which they worshipped. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, it says, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Are you guys picking up on this? They were to be separated. They were unique. There was something about them that was different, and the way they showed the differentiation between them and everybody else was their relationship with God. The way that they lived, the way that they talked, the way that they worshipped Him. Now let's look at another one. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 says, When the Most High divided the inheritance of the nation, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the place of His inheritance. This is talking about that moment of the table of nations when they're separated at the Tower of Babel. How God chose a people for himself. I'm going to do a few more. 1 Kings 8, 53. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Let's go to Ezra chapter 6. What's going on in Ezra? They're coming out of captivity. They're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 6, verse 19, And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. They kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So what do we see here? They separated themselves. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. With respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, that the holy seed is mixed with the people of the land. You guys remember what Moses warned his people about? Don't do that. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair on my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished uh, the evening, until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. Having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has grown up to the heavens since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your service to the prophet, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the people of the lands, with their abomination, which have filled it from one end to another with impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as 
wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we left as a remnant as it is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra is crying out because everything they went through was self-inflicted and here they are again. And we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about that, but what do we see? There are hundreds of verses talking about how Israel was to be separated. They were to be a unique nation, a individual of kings and priests, a holy people set apart to the service of God as an example to the entire world of what worshiping Yahweh would allow for. And in that, people from around the world could come and enter into that same covenant following the stipulations. But what did they have to do? They had to forsake everything. Their family, their money, their land, whatever it was, they had to forsake it all. Their heritage, their false God worship, they would come, enter into this place, become circumcised, and worship and sacrifice to Yahweh like a natural-born Israelite. And what did God say to the nation of Israel? You will treat that stranger as if he was born here. Because he is one of you. What separated the nations apart was not necessarily their blood, but the God of which they worshipped. This rings true throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Remember the debate that happens with Acts chapter 15. What do we do with these Gentiles that are coming to the faith? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to keep the dietary? What do they need to do? And they're like, well, no, that's not the case. And Peter gets in there and, and builds this case for it. And so when we begin to see this, we're like, okay, Israel was to be separated. What about the church today? Jesus said that you are a unique people. And because they hate me, they are going to hate you. You can't be hated if you're just like them. You know what people love? Hearing their thoughts through your mouth. Hearing your beliefs through your mouth. You embracing whatever they think and whatever they believe. You get a group of people together, and they will sit there as long as they agree, everything's fine. And the moment there's any sort of a disagreement in a thought process, suddenly there is tension there because we're not allowed to think for ourselves. There's a joke that goes out there is that if you get two Jews in a room, you'll have three different opinions. That's a joke. They like to argue. That's the point. But let's look at what some of the New Testament says in all of this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore... Laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now let's stop for a moment. He just said, let's lay all of this aside and desire the word. That means that somebody has come to Christ. So what you were, how you acted, talked, all of that, let's lay all of that aside. Because now you're new. As a newborn babe, desire the pure spiritual milk of the word, desire that. Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, it also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected and has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. So they are rejecting it. You notice it says a rock of offense? That's talking about Jesus. He seemed to offend a few people, don't you think? Verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous, marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This group of people is now separated. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is God's special people. Why? Because they proclaim the praises of Him who called them out of darkness. You can't mix light and dark. But that is what we're trying to do today. We want Jesus as a convenience. We want to proclaim Him as our Savior without looking to see what that even means. We, as a church today, are sitting here declaring a gospel different than the one in which Jesus came and paid for. And we wonder why we're messed up. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. It says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the shame I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now that's a majorly misunderstood verse. It gets thrown around loosely. We're not going into it today, but I would encourage you to look into that a little bit. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. So therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, there's a lot that's been said here. But the bottom line is to come out from among them and be separate. And then at chapter 7, he says, let us cleanse ourselves. What is he talking about here? It's not salvation. Because that is done by God. You simply receive it. That cleansing from death to life is done by Him. But who is responsible for cleansing ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God? That is you and that is I. We don't get a pass and just saying, well, this is just the way I am. Because God has made a way for us to get past all of that. But we justify our behaviors. We justify our actions. We justify our words and saying, yeah, Sometimes I just have a temper. Oh, it's okay. God doesn't mind this. We are speaking on behalf of God things contrary to what God has given us to speak. It would be no difference when it says that God has given them the word of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. Meaning what? That they were to go and declare that sin has been paid for. Today is the day of salvation. You can be wiped clean. 
And if they had gotten up there and said those three things, and somebody says, but I feel like God made me this way, what would they say? You're right. God loves you just the way that you are. That's not what they said. It's no different. This is the way the church would act today. There was a rich man that came to Jesus. and says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And what did he say to him? He said, sell all of your belongings and follow me. And what did the guy do? He didn't like that. So he turned around and left. What would the church do? We'd run after him. We'd be like, well, okay, listen. I mean, it's, you're going to have to eventually, but you don't have to today. We'll ease this in here. A little bit, we'll put it on an easy layaway plan. And we'll just let you make payments. We would do anything to get him into the fold and compromise the truth of what Jesus has said in order to get them in. Because what happens when they come? If they attend the church or they go to the Bible study or they do whatever. Or maybe they even get baptized because somebody is willing to baptize them without asking the question, have you really given your heart to God? What do we do? We feel like we won. So we're really to compromise the truth to get people into our club. And what did Jesus do? He watched him walk away. He didn't chase him. He let him walk away. Compromise will never lead to success. Jesus knew his role. What was his role? Tell them the truth. His role was not to convince them that it was true. That is what we're trying to do. And we're just trying to just, oh, just come on in. Maybe they'll hear the gospel. Maybe if we just, we let them be a part or we just do something like that. Maybe they'll just hear the gospel and they'll get saved. And that might be true. But in the meantime, we're compromising scripture. Guys, if we eliminate this, we have nothing to stand on. We have no foundation. Your belief about God is nothing more than an opinion if this is not true. That means that when somebody dies and they, they feel like they were a good person, oh, they're in heaven today, smiling down upon us. That's not how that works. No different than if they were baptized as a child. They're like, well, at least they were baptized. No, they got a bath. Because it's a heart issue. But we have changed the gospel and be like, well, Jesus just accepts everybody every way. No, he doesn't. He paid the price, so you don't have to be that way. But the church today is compromised. If you've read chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, you know where we are. We are the Laodiceans. We will not stand up for truth. We will not sacrifice all on that truth. One of the ways that we know that the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus is true is the fact that the disciples lay down their lives as a result of that. In other words, if they knew that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, there's no way they're going to sacrifice their lives for that truth. If the body was moved, stolen, whatever, there's all these things that are out there. Because people will die for a, a lie only if they believe it's true. We are not willing to sacrifice all to stand up for what is right. You see individual business owners that will compromise their values to not lose everything. We should not be those people. We see churches that will compromise truth because they want people to attend. We should not be those people. We're not trying to fill seats. We're trying to allow the Holy Spirit to change hearts. You and I can't do it. Our job is to speak the truth. Our job is to crucify our flesh. Our job is to renew our mind. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict hearts. You see, 
the church today compared to the church back then is not even close. Let me give you another example from history. I told you about Smyrna. Let's take it one step farther. I want to introduce you guys to a guy named Diocletian. Good looking guy, wasn't he? He ruled from 284 to 305. That's not when he lived. That's when he ruled. He was a Roman emperor. What do we know about the Caesars? They were worshipped as gods. And when the Caesar had a son, he was the son of God. But there's something unique about Diocletian because he was not like the others. He is the only emperor who did not die but retired. Because most of them died either in battle or as a result of the lifestyles they lived. Too much drinking, too many women, whatever. Most of them died that way. He actually retired. And when he took over, he was smarter than the average bear. Because he had an engineering mind. In fact, he went through and he cleaned up the Roman Empire. And, and to the point that he fixed everything. The sewer systems that we see in uh, archaeology. The bathhouses, all the roads, all of that kind of stuff was done by him. And the Romans loved it. Because it's kind of like, you ever, uh, we can talk about Rockport. If you live in Rockport, you know that we got some rough roads. And we all get excited when we see him finally tearing that stuff up and laying new concrete, don't we? And that's essentially what he did. He went through and he fixed everything. He was an engineer. He was incredibly intelligent. But he had one problem that kept creeping up. And it had been creeping up so much through the years that he finally had enough. Because he knew of Nero's problems with followers of the way. They were a nuisance in Rome. And they just were getting worse and worse. Remember, Christian was not a term that was given to them. These were followers of the way, and there was a problem because they were not partaking in the bathhouses. They were not partaking in the game. In fact, it was becoming so much so that the Word of God was spreading that people were stepping away from that, that they were having an impact. And because of that, Diocletian got upset. So now they become a major, major problem that he's going to deal with. And he had three solutions to this. The number one, he's going to destroy their places of worship. If they don't have a place to meet, they can't they can't get together. The second part, he was going to destroy their leaders. All the pastors and preachers that went around, he was going to capture them. At a minimum, put them in prison. And most of the time, he was going to kill them. Because now their leaders are gone, just like in military. You take out the head, the rest will eventually disperse and this will go away. The third part is we're going to destroy their holy books. It is because of him that we do not have an entire copy of the New Testament or even the Old Testament. Because what was happening, he was burning and destroying everything he could get his hands on. And so what the believers would do is they would tear parts out. And some would keep this part and some would keep that part. And they would get spread around. That's why we have over 26,000 fragments of the New Testament. And that number is growing every single year. It's by far and away the most documented book in all of antiquity is the New Testament. The closest second is Homer's Iliad with 800. 26,000 to 800. There's a big difference there. But he was trying to wipe them out. And so this is why you hear about some of the early church would meet in the catacombs and places like that because it was the only place they could go where they couldn't be found. They were doing anything. And he thought if I just get rid of all of these things, which he did, he would wipe it out. And this is the moment where Christianity almost became extinct because he was killing everybody that he could. He became closer to destroying Christianity than any other Roman emperor ever did. And there was over 30 of them that had tried. 
and yet look at us today 2,000 years later. You see, these people would not compromise truth. The compromise like, you know what, I can just go, I can go to the Colosseum, it's not a big deal, I don't have to enjoy it, but I can go. Jesus would understand. I can go to the bathhouse, you know, I can pinch the incense, I can go and partake of this stuff, it's no big deal. It was a big deal to them. But you and I today, we do the same thing with less expectation, with less on the line. Because today we just get ostracized from society. Our lives aren't on the line here. Theirs were. There are parts around the world that it is. We've got to begin to think differently. What does a Christian look like? What do they sound like? What do they do? If we're going to take the name of God, we should not take it in vain. And unfortunately, that is where we are today. As we continue in this, we're going to begin to see the differentiations here. Because there is something unique about you. Think about this. An Israelite, to go to where the presence of God was, had to go to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem into the temple. For you and I, we take that presence with us everywhere we go. The world should notice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And Lord, we thank you that we are here for a reason that you have created us for a time, and Lord, that we are useful for your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. Lord, I thank you for those that have paid the way before us. And I thank you, Father, that you're quickening in our heart a time for us to rise up and be different, to be counted, to be unique, to be your holy people set apart for your service, to do what you have called us to do, and no longer simply play church, but to truly, truly be the church, the one set apart on mission for you, uncompromising in every way, standing on the truth of your word. And Lord, I thank you that as we continue to do that, as we preach that gospel, every opportunity we have, that you are continuing to confirm it with signs following, that the world may know that Jesus lives, that he died for us, paid that price, and he is moving on our behalf today, that you be glorified in every aspect of our lives. We just thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week. Bible study Tuesday for the ladies.